Dr. Tom Schreiner. Amen. God bless. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for that kind introduction. It's, it's uh, wonderful to be with you. I wanted to add that I was saved at 17 through the person who became my wife. She has been a great blessing to me in the past and in the present, and I trust in the future. It's, it's such a joy for me to be here. Um, you, you know, we're, we're in a great battle in our country with, uh, for the faith, and it's so encouraging to come here and to see such a vibrant fellowship, a fellowship that I didn't know about, and to see how large and you're flourishing and committed to Scripture and all you're doing in this community. Uh, that just brings tremendous joy to me. Words can't express how much it means to me to see, to see the ministry that's been uh, uh, going on here. So uh, I just thank you for that. Thank you for uh, letting me be a part of it. Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8. My text is Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. We will read in a moment um, Romans eight twenty-eight through 39, but I'm going to focus on the last, uh, the last eight verses. My title is An Invincible Hope, a hope that can't be conquered, a hope that will certainly prevail. As as Christians, our hope is a certain confidence. You know, in the the world, we use the word hope sometimes to refer to something that we're not sure will come to pass. Uh, When I was young, around 13 or 14, my brother and I played a lot of sports together and we played baseball. And one season, uh, we went out for a team, we went to some practices, and we saw that the team was going to be terrible. And, and so my brother and I conspired together. My dad really wanted us to play, and, and we conspired together to go home and tell my dad that we didn't want to play this year. We, we didn't want to tell him why. We didn't want to tell him the team was terrible. But so, so we got together and conspired to tell him such, and we did, but he rejected it, and he made us play. We played 15 games that year, and we won zero. We were zero and 15, so we were right. We, we hoped we would win some games, but that's not biblical hope, is it? You know, we, we saw from the beginning this team was an awful team, and I guess, I guess we didn't help it out too much. I, I think of, you know, I'm thinking of human examples here. I think in contrast of, uh, of the Kentucky Wildcats, can I say that here? Uh, Duke won the championship, so, you know, North Carolina wins many times, so no, no applause, please. But anyway, um, I, I moved to Kentucky in 1997. I'm not a native Kentuckian, but in 1998, that's the last time we have something to cheer about in Kentucky. In 1998, the Wildcats won the NCAA title, and they were known as the comeback cats. You know, they'd fall far behind teams in the tournament. This happened regularly. But every time they'd come back and win. That was a team, what, full of hope. No matter how far they fell behind, sometimes 15, 18 points, they'd come roaring back and win. And, you know, when a team begins to build that kind of confidence, they're sure they're going to come back. They have that confidence they're, they're going to win. At least that's akin to biblical hope. Of course, biblical hope is absolutely certain. Uh, I think of another example in life where there isn't hope. I have a very dear friend of mine. We've been friends for uh, 25 to 30 years. 
and he has a debilitating sickness. He's confined to his bed. He's my age, mid-50s. He's confined to his bed most of the day. When he gets up, he's in a wheelchair. He's been to so many physicians, so many neurologists. They can't even tell him what's wrong with him. They don't even know what his malady is. So he really doesn't have an earthly hope. He has a spiritual hope, but in terms of his earthly life, things are, are fair, fairly difficult. I think in contrast to when I had hernia surgery about 10 years ago, that's not a fun surgery to have, but in one sense, it's routine. I knew after the surgery, the day after the surgery, I was in quite a bit of pain, but I was full of hope. I knew every day I was going to feel better. I had something to look forward to. It was not, it was not something that was going to continue to afflict me. Well, in this passage before us, Paul emphasizes the centrality of hope in the Christian life, that our hope is objective. It's not based on our feelings. It's an objective hope in Christ. I think hope is the theme of all of Romans 5 through 8, and Paul culminates that section with his ringing endorsement of the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. So let's read these verses. I want to start with uh, verse 28. I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord Surely, that is one of the greatest passages on hope in all of the scriptures. I'd like to lift out three truths from this passage for you today. And the first comes from verses 31 and 32. Our hope is invincible because God is for us. Paul begins by saying, what then shall we say to these things? What does these things refer to? I think we could argue that these things refers to the whole of the book of Romans. The whole of Paul's argument 
from chapter 1, verse 16, through chapter 8, verse 30. Paul's argument where he shows the sinfulness of human beings and the great redemption that has been accomplished for us in Christ. What then shall we say to these things? It, it is summed up in the rhetorical question that follows. You see that in your Bible? If God is for us, who can be against us? We could summarize Romans 1.16 through 8.30 as a message of God being for us. And Paul asks, if it is the case that God is for us, then who is against us? The answer is lots of things. Satan could be against us, right? You may have enemies that are against you. You may have circumstances that are against you. There are all kinds of things that could oppress us. Disease, like my friend. Paul is not denying that we have such difficulties in this passage. Indeed, if the difficulties, even in this very room, if, if one by one people got up and shared trials... And, and by the way, I know many of you are rejoicing, maybe not going through a significant trial here. But if, if we just had people come up in this room and share their trials and their difficulties, we would be overwhelmed. Because we don't, we don't know all the things going on in this room. And some of you are suffering, maybe many of you, really significant difficulties in your life. Paul's point is, however... That if God is for us, nothing that opposes us can conquer us. God is turning all these things that are against us to our good. Isn't that what verse 28 says? All things, not some things, not most things, not just pleasant things, all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 32 explains how God is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see the argument there? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. God has done the greatest thing imaginable for us. He's given us his son. He's given us his dear son whom he loves. And the son in love gladly came for our redemption. He has fulfilled our greatest need, which is the forgiveness of our sins. Therefore, Paul argues, he will give us the lesser thing. What is the lesser thing? He will give us, do you see it in the text? All things. He'll give us everything. All our needs are met because God has given us his son in Jesus Christ. He has delivered up Christ as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. Now, of course, this message, I just want to pause for a moment and say, this message is for those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ. I know in a room of this size, not everyone in here is a believer. Not every one of you is trusting in Jesus Christ. Here's one way you can tell if you're not a believer, if you think that you'd be right with God because you're a good person, if you think you'd be right with God because you've kept most of the commandments, if, then you're, that's, that's a sign that you're not a believer. If you think you're right with God because you attend church or you've been baptized or you go forward, 
That's not what makes someone a believer. What makes someone a believer is someone trusts in Jesus Christ and his atonement. Someone trusts in Christ's righteousness to be right with God. They don't trust in themselves, but they trust in Christ. The greatest gift we can ever receive is the forgiveness of sins. Martin Luther said, if I knew that God wasn't angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. We know, if we're Christians, we know that God isn't angry with us, don't we? We know that's true. Christian, do you know that? Do you feel, as a believer, that God is mainly angry with you? Do you feel that God is frowning upon you? If that's so, you're not really understanding the gospel. Because the gospel teaches that you are dearly loved. The gospel teaches that you are in Christ. His righteousness is yours. It's not the gospel to think that God is finally and fundamentally frowning upon us. Since he's given us his dear son, he will give us everything that we need. He works all things together for good. Now, I want to return to that verse, Romans 8, 28. He works all things together for good. What is the good there? The good, as I've already mentioned, is not necessarily pleasant things, is it? What what is the good in context, though? Did you see verse 29? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the good. The good is to be conformed to the image of his son. God works all things together for good. He works all things so that we become more like Jesus. So every circumstance in our life, everything that happens to us passes through God's hands first. God is absolutely sovereign, isn't he? He's in control of everything. Every grain of sand. Proverbs 16 says he's in control of where the dice lands. So nothing happens to you by accident. Everything passes through God's hands, and it's all for your good. That is, that you'd become more like Jesus Christ. It isn't so that we necessarily live days that are pleasant, although God gives us many of those, doesn't he? But God brings everything into our lives for our good so that we'd be like Jesus I think here of um, Malcolm Muggeridge. You know that name? Malcolm Muggeridge was a British journalist. He lived into his 80s or 90s. For most of his life, Malcolm Muggeridge was not a Christian. He was an unbeliever. Uh, Muggeridge wrote a book. I love the title of the, the book he wrote. It, it was his biography. It was a two-volume biography. You know what he, what he titled it? It was a great title. Chronicles of Wasted Time. Because he was an unbeliever. But Muggeridge looked back on his life, and he said he learned most in his life through suffering. It was the suffering of life from which he learned so much. Or, or I think of Corey Ten Boom. Probably most of you know that name. Corey and her sister Betsy and her parents during World War II when the, when the Germans invaded Holland. They hid Jews from the Nazis. But, of course, the Nazis found out that they were hiding the Jews, and they arrested Corey and her sister. Corey's sister died, Betsy, in the concentration camp. Corey survived and went on to have a fruitful ministry. 
for many years, but Corey talked about our lives being a tapestry from God's perspective. All the things that are woven into our lives are a tapestry for our good. But we see what the other side of the tapestry often. We don't see it from God's perspective, and it looks confusing and random, and it doesn't seem to make sense. In other words, we accept this promise that God works all things together for good by faith. Not because we can see these things, but we believe these things. God is assuring us it is so. All things are for our benefit. Psalm 34 verse 10 says, Those who seek the Lord do not lack any good thing. That's the same promise, isn't it? If you seek the Lord, he has given you every good thing you need. Do you believe that? Do you trust that promise? That's a promise of God. He's given you every good thing you need in your life. Now, now let me be honest. I don't always believe that promise when, when things come into my life that I don't enjoy. I can find it hard to believe the promise. I know this promise really well. But I, but I need to be reminded of it day by day, and I need the Holy Spirit, and you need the Holy Spirit, to so work in your heart that we trust and believe in that promise. That's why we need to hear the regular preaching of the Word, even if we already know these truths. That's why we need prayer. That's why we need the fellowship of God's people to believe the things that are already in Scripture, to believe the things that many of us already know and have been taught. So whether it's your work or family, or circumstances, or health. God is for you. God is working all these things together for your good. You have a hope that can't be conquered. Secondly, verses 33 and 34. Our hope is invincible because God will never condemn us. Let's read verses 33 and 34 again. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. This is a law court situation. God's the judge. And he's judging human beings. That's what will take place on the last day. There will be a day of judgment. And God will be the judge. And everyone will stand before him. And he'll either declare someone to be guilty, and they'll go to hell, or not guilty, and they'll go to heaven. And the word justifies, God is the one who justifies. The word justifies means that God declares someone to be not guilty. And, of course, those who are not guilty are those who belong to Jesus Christ and are who are trusting in his death on their behalf. Paul asks, who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's God's chosen. That's you and me if we're Christians. God has chosen us to be his children. He's elected us from the foundation of the world. Who will bring a charge? And the answer is Satan could bring a charge on that last day, couldn't he? Your enemies may bring a charge against you. Perhaps your very own conscience and feelings would bring a charge against you. Perhaps you're sitting there right now today and you feel guilty. Our our society is a very feeling-oriented society, isn't it? We think, as modern 21st century people, we often think that our feelings are reality. 
And, and many Christians struggle with feelings of being guilty. But what does this text tell us? It doesn't matter what Satan says. It doesn't matter what your enemies say. It doesn't matter what your conscience says or what your feelings say. The only thing that matters in this courtroom is what God says. God's the judge and he's the jury. And God's word is the final reality, isn't it? I had a seminary student come to see me really troubled. My heart just ached for him. He told me, and he was a believer in Christ, he told me, Every day, every day, I think I'm not a Christian. I struggle with the idea that I'm not a Christian. And that depends on your personality. Some of you don't struggle with that at all. But some of you struggle with that quite a bit. And he was a believer. And I said to him, I wouldn't say this to everybody, but I said to him, you know what? You should think about whether you're a Christian once a year. Just threw that out of the hat. But because he needs to focus on the gospel, doesn't he? He needs to focus on what Christ has done for him and and to think every day about himself. That's not what God wants us to do. God wants us to focus on Christ and what he's done for us. A sure way to get depressed is to think about ourselves all the time. I had a good friend who was a judge in Portland, Oregon. He invited me into his courtroom one day just to see him try a case, and then we were going to go have lunch together. So this was a very simple case where we, have, we had a prosecuting attorney, the person being charged with the crime, and the judge, no jury. So just three people in the courtroom. Well, four, because I was invited to be in there. So, so the prosecuting attorney comes in, and he lists the charges against uh, this person and argues that he ought to be punished. The judge asks the person being charged a few questions, and this lasted maybe 10, 15 minutes. Then the judge said, not guilty. The prosecuting attorney was furious. He went out of the room sputtering and muttering under his breath. I don't know what he was saying about the judge, some bad things probably. And the person who was being charged went out with a big smile on his face. The ultimate reality was what the judge said, not what the prosecuting attorney thought, not even what the person felt who walked out of the courtroom free. It's what the judge says that was the final reality. And the judge said, you're not guilty. And that's the gospel, isn't it, if you belong to Jesus? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. It's his word that is the final reality. Verse 34, ask the question in the same terms. Who is the one who condemns? Perhaps if you die slowly, Satan will bring to mind your sins. Probably he will. What do you do on that day? And of course, not just that day. How do you answer accusations like this? Paul gives us an answer in this verse, and it has four steps, and it progresses, actually. Who is the one who condemns? Well, not God, not Christ. Here's the four reasons. First, God will not condemn us on the day of judgment because Christ died for our sins. Our sins are laid on God's dear Son, and there's no such thing as double jeopardy. We don't pay the penalty twice. He's paid the penalty. We point to Christ. Secondly, how do we know that God accepted Christ's sacrifice on the cross? 
How can we be sure? It says Christ Jesus was also raised. His resurrection vindicated him as the Messiah. It vindicated his sacrifice. It shows that God accepted his sacrifice. Jesus was delivered over, Romans 4, 25 says, because of our trespasses and was raised because of our justification. We're saved by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, both. Third, Christ Jesus is now at the right hand of God. He's been exalted to God's right hand. God is pleased with him. And we are united with Christ. We are raised with Christ. So he's pleased with us if we belong to Jesus. Not because we're so good, but because we belong to Jesus. God is not angry with his son. He delights in him. And he's not angry with us. He loves us. He sings for joy over us. Zephaniah chapter 3. Finally, Christ Jesus intercedes for us. He intercedes with the Father on the basis of his blood. And he says, as in that great song by Charles Wesley, don't let that ransomed sinner die. You know that song, Arise My Soul, Rise? That's a great song. Maybe you sing it here. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. And of course, God doesn't want that ransomed sinner to die because Christ, God sent Christ to atone for our sins. So it's not as if he's persuading an angry father. No, the father and the son are together, but Christ pleads on the basis of his blood. And of course, God always answers the intercessions of his son. Martin Luther talks about a physician in his day, a doctor, obviously a very educated and gifted man, who who killed himself, who committed suicide. Why did he do that? Because he was listening to certain messages in his head. You know, the messages we listen to are very important, aren't they? What do you believe is true? We all, we all speak to ourselves messages. That's why it's so important the messages are from the Bible. Because this doctor was speaking to himself. And you know what he believed? He believed that Jesus was at the right hand of God, accusing him before God of his sin. Well, that drove him crazy, crazy enough to kill himself, right? Because he believed Jesus was saying to the Father, that doctor's no good. He ought to go to hell. He ought to be condemned. That is false. That's satanic, right? If I, I'm sure Luther said this, but if I could have talked to that doctor, I would have said, that is not from God. That's from Satan. The Bible says exactly the opposite, doesn't it? The Bible says that Christ pleads on the basis of his blood for the forgiveness of sinners, not the condemnation. That's not the gospel. That's the wrong message. Our hope is secure, not because we're so good, but because of Christ's atonement. God will honor the death of his son. He will not despise it. It doesn't matter what others say. It doesn't matter what Satan says. It doesn't matter what your feelings say. All that matters is what God says. And God is the one who justifies on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and intercession. Corey Tenboom said, God has thrown our sins in the depths of the sea. And he put up a sign. And the sign says, No fishing. 
I want to read you a poem. I just discovered this poem this week. I'm sure many of you have known it for a long time, but I, I came across this poem this week by Robert Murray McShane, very godly man, called Jehovah Zidakenu. Uh, Jehovah means Lord, and Zidakenu is, is Hebrew for our righteousness. So you, you won't understand this poem unless you understand Jehovah Zidakenu. So Jehovah, Lord, and Zidakenu, the Lord is our righteousness. That comes from Jeremiah chapter 23, 6, where Jeremiah teaches the Lord is our righteousness, Jehovah Zidakenu. Well, here's the poem. I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Zidakenu was nothing to me. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure and John's simple page. But even when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Zidakenu seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul. Yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree, Jehovah Zidakenu, t'was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fear shook me, I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see, Jehovah Zidakenu, my Savior must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fear banished. With boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah Zidakenu is all things to me. Jehovah Zidakenu, my treasure and boast. Jehovah Zidakenu, I ne'er can be lost. In thee shall I conquer by flood and by field, my cable, my anchor, my breastplate and shield. Even treading the valley, the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath, for while from life's fever my God sets me free, Jehovah Zidakenu, my death song, shall be. We have no fear of condemnation, brothers and sisters, because Christ has died for us. Thirdly, and quickly, our hope is invisible because Christ's love will not let us go. That's found in verses 35 through 39. Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And here he lists the things that could separate us. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword. In verse 36, Paul cites Psalm 44, verse 22. For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep for the slaughter. Why does he cite that psalm in the middle of his argument? What role does it play here? In Psalm 44, we see the psalmist complaining about something. Let's read the psalm and see what's going on. Well, let's read part of it. Let's start in verse 9. We'll read verses 9 through 14. You have rejected us. You is God here. He's, they're speaking to God. You have rejected us and brought us to dishonor and do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary. You give us as sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. Well, when we read about all these terrible things that happen, we think Israel must have sinned. That's why they're losing. That's why they're being defeated. But look at verse 17. 
All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, and we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Verse 22, for your sake we are slain all the day long and reckoned as sheep for the slaughter. So why does Paul cite these verses? To show that terrible sufferings do happen to God's people, even when they're following God. God doesn't exempt us from these things. Such sufferings don't indicate that God doesn't love us. Some Christians here have an amazing blind spot, don't they? We love them, but they have an amazing blind spot because they'll teach, if you're God's child, you won't get sick. You won't suffer. You won't experience difficult things. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible's very clear. No, these verses are very clear. Some Christians are persecuted and put to death for the faith. Right now, some of our brothers and sisters are being put to death. By the way, parenthesis, do you pray for them? Do you pray for your brothers and sisters who are being persecuted? Remember them in your prayers? Some Christians starve to death. Famine, that's what it says. Ordinarily, God gives his children food, Matthew 6. But sometimes, sometimes, he gives them the grace to make it. And to experience his love starving to death. That's hard, isn't it? But he does it. What's his argument here? God's love, Christ's love is still there. When I taught at Azusa Pacific, I had a man in his 40s, his teenage son, who was 21 years old, was killed by a drunk driver. The pain in his life was unimaginable to me. I had a couple that I was counseling. They were about to be married. And this young lady at 4.30 on a Sunday afternoon, on a sunny day in Southern California, was raped. No, we're not exempted from trials and sufferings as Christians, are we? And none of us know what those sufferings will be. But we do know that the sufferings, no matter how great they are, will never sever us from God's love. That's what this text says. His love will sustain us in the worst of times. We're more than conquerors, Paul tells us. How come we're more than conquerors? Because God will take those enemies and make us stronger. He'll make us more like Jesus through those sufferings. I wish you could have seen the tender love of Jesus in my student who lost his 21-year-old son. I wish you could have seen that he wasn't bitter and he wasn't resentful. Even though when he told me about what was happening in his life, he was crying. But he was full of the love of Jesus. And I'm a Christian, but I said, that's miraculous. That's God working in him. I wish you could have seen my student who was raped tell me I forgive the person who did that to me. Even though she testified against him in court, rightly so. Those aren't contradictory, right? She rightly testified him so he'd be in prison. But she forgave him. That's a miracle. I don't want to be simplistic. I'm not denying that the process may be long and hard. 
But the point of this text is true. We don't forgive because we're so great or we're so strong or we're so spiritual or we're so godly. We forgive because Christ's love sustains us. There's nothing in life that can separate us from the love of God. Not death, not life, not your present circumstances, not what the future may bring, not demons, not height, not depth, nothing. So I want to close with this. I just want to close with a theological point from this text. I think it's clear from these verses, no genuine believer in Christ can ever lose their salvation. Some people argue from these verses, well, all these verses say is external things can't separate you from Christ, but you could choose to turn against them. You know, famine can't separate you from Christ, or persecution can't separate you from Christ, but you could choose to separate yourself from Christ. But I think that's clearly wrong, because Paul lists the kinds of things that would cause us to depart from Christ, doesn't he? He lists the worst things imaginable, starving to death. Losing your life. And he says you won't be separated from Christ's love. That's his very point. Christ's love is so strong, it'll keep you. What a comfort. What a hope. It'll keep you. When we're threatened with death because of our Christian faith, Christ's love will sustain us. The love of Christ will not Let us go. His love will strengthen us in the hardest hours. We're prone to wander. We only make it because of God's grace. You know that hymn? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And Romans 8 tells us, He has sealed it, and he will seal it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the invincible hope we have in the gospel. And Lord, we pray by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to believe and trust these things. We need your help. We pray this in Jesus' name, rejoicing in all you've given us. Amen.